Thank you for tuning into the Spectator podcast today. Before you get to the action, we'd just like to flog an offer. It's 12 issues for £12 along with a £20 Amazon voucher. Do the math, something's not quite right, so grab it while you can. Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Edition, a Spectator podcast where we discuss three of the top stories in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Katie Balls. This week, I find out how the capital can rebuild after the pandemic. Also, Alex Massey explains how the new Tory leader in Scotland, Douglas Ross, can keep the United Kingdom together. Finally, I speak to Francis Pike about why the looming conflict between India and China in the Bay of Bengal should matter to the West. First, in this week's cover story, economist Gerard Lyons says that with coronavirus cases in London down to 75 a day and the city accounting for nearly a quarter of the country's total GDP, the capital needs to get moving again. He joins me now alongside Simon Jenkins, author of A Short History of London and former editor of The Evening Standard. Gerard, in your cover piece this week, you ask where London can survive. What are the unique challenges that the capital is facing as a result of coronavirus? In terms of London, there's a whole host of issues. I think the particular importance is London's significance to the UK economy. London accounts for almost one quarter of the economy. Therefore, in an economic recovery, what happens in London is vitally important. But also, as I mentioned in the piece, it's not only London in its own right, but as the GLA itself has highlighted a number of times in recent years, it's the interconnection between London and the rest of the economy. So as London recovers, it helps other parts of the economy. That being said, clearly levelling up is very important. That is, we need to not just focus on London, but we need to highlight the imbalances in the economy. Naturally, they're not linked to this virus. But it's not a case of looking at London at the expense of other parts of the country. Maybe the other point in terms of answering your question is that we locked down, in my view, too late. That's very much in the past. In some respects, we've unlocked too late. But in terms of unlocking, that clearly allows parts of the economy across the whole country to recover relatively quickly. But in the vaccine gap, we naturally have to focus on behaviours social distancing, the wearing of masks, but also the inability of people to gather in crowds. And in the piece, I highlight the fact that, in my view, one of the important features of the London economy is not in its cluster effect, but the creative area of the London economy, the culture and creativity that helps to contribute to London's vibe. And in terms of the virus phase we're going through at the moment, the challenge facing London is that many parts of the London economy that naturally contribute to the reason for people wanting to work, live and visit there aren't able to return to normal. And therefore, I think we need to actually be mindful of that. And the government, while at the end of the day needing to incentivise the private sector, needs to play a role in helping those parts of the London economy, which are vital for its long term success, to weather the near term difficulties of the next phase of the virus. Simon, I'm recording at least on my end of this podcast from Westminster, which I think is pretty much a ghost town at the moment. But we have had Eat Out to help out. Places across London are a little bit busier. But ultimately, if you look at some of the things Gerard just spoke about, so what attracts people to London, the arts, the social scene, they are diminished as a result of this virus. So do you worry that perhaps the reasons people would want to come to London are going? 
Firstly, you ask the question, will London survive? <laughs> Cities always survive. They suffer traumas occasionally, but they survive. So let's wash that out of the way. The question is what, um, I think, nudge, what distinction is going to result from this as far as London's social economy and political economy is concerned. There's no doubt at all it's taking a terrific rap at the moment. It's probable that you may see the City of London and Westminster come out of this with a 20-30% decline in its daily commuting population. Now that still leaves the people who live here already. And the thing I find cause for bluntly optimism is, as I said, cities not only never seriously decline, they do survive. They usually come out of these traumas, and this particularly applies to London, in some way strengthened. If you look back in London's history, the two biggest traumas in modern history were the, the Great Fire and then the Blitz. And in both these cases, London was given a jolt. It depopulated very quickly for a very short period of time. But it used the depopulation in some uh, sort of instinctive free market sense to refashion itself for a new age. And I think what's quite exciting at the moment is you're going to see a decline in the office worker economy. But most of London's not office workers. Most of London's to do with the leisure and tourism industry and people who just live here for whatever reason. And I think you're going to see these people, um, in fact, strengthening. Um, the London that the Gerard talks about in his article is very important, the creative hub economy of London. It's actually doing quite well even at the moment. I mean, Westminster's not dead. Uh, the bits of Westminster I go to are doing quite well. I mean, Soho is booming at the moment. But it's interesting that cities just have ways of adjusting to these crises, and I think London will adjust to it quite well. Gerard, one of the things I think that has unnerved some about uh, recovery for the capital is the fact that over the weekend we had mooted in a few press reports the idea of local lockdowns and that apparently includes the potential of a whole London-wide lockdown. Do you think that is something which the city can survive? Do you think that it's a danger in the sense that we should be looking to more localised lockdowns if we're going to attract investors, you know, reassure people living in cities is something that is desirable compared to, say, a town where you're much less likely to have, I suppose, the chances of a lockdown like that. Yeah, there's a whole host of issues in that question, but I would like to echo the point that I'm very positive about the longer term outlook for London. And indeed, in the very near term, I think large parts of the London economy will show their resilience and be able to rebound. But in terms of this virus, we are in an interesting situation. In the piece itself, I do cite some data that highlights that we're in a very different position to where we were in March at the height of the crisis. And that's not only true for London, it's true for the whole of the UK itself. Then in March, there was naturally a big fear factor. We knew very little about the virus. It was then assumed that the death rate of those who caught it might be between 3 to 5%, so between 1 in 20 to 1 in 33, and it's a highly infectious virus. Now we're in a very different situation. We're able to treat it better. It is still very infectious, but now we know that the mortality rates are far lower. So it, that doesn't mean that we should be complacent, but I think that we also need to recognise the fact that there is no trade-off between health versus the economy. Lockdown not only hits an economy very hard, but it also has associated negative health effects. So I would argue that we should try and avoid a lockdown of the national economy. Also, given its significance in terms of population and economic size, we should try and avoid a lockdown of the London economy. However, in the vaccine gap, one needs to have three things in place, testing, track and trace, and behaviours do need to be different to before the virus in order to minimise the risk of it returning. So that means there is always the threat of a localised 
lockdown. But if one looks at an economy, the outlook for any economy, whether it's London or the UK or indeed the wider world economy, depends on the interaction between the economic fundamentals, policy and confidence. Unlocking does allow large parts of the economy to rebound quickly, but the fact that we have social distancing, etc. in place, as I pointed out earlier, doesn't allow all to rebound quickly. Also, it leads to scarring in terms of higher unemployment. But fundamentals, policy and confidence. Policy has been very accommodative and constructive, but the big challenge is confidence. Simon, you brought a wave of optimism to this podcast on the issue of the capital, but I just wondered, you paint a picture of a London which is going to be less dependent on people going to offices, but if we end up in a situation where we have localised lockdowns, quite a regular occurrence of everyday life until we have some other way to deal with the virus, I think some people might think that the best way to avoid that is to not live in a city, where there is probably a higher chance of that. So do you think there is a risk of localised lockdowns, meaning that lots of people just decide that the life they can have in London is not quite worth it? Well, I don't think localised lockdown in London makes sense. I'm sorry, I actually think this is over uh, as a mass epidemic. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Swede, I'm afraid. I just don't think we're going to go there anymore. The biggest problem, as, as Gerard says, is confidence. British workers are three times more scared of going back to the office than any other workers in Europe, today's figures in, in the Times showed. That's terrible. I mean, that, that, it, the success of the scare politics of, of this have, has been total. We've got to get people back to work, frankly. Uh, and that means getting people commuting again. All the things that make cities work have got to happen again. But you're right. It's almost certain that people will be less inclined to crowd into offices in the city centre. That means they'll decentralise. They'll do exactly what they did after the Great Fire. <laughs> they'll move out. And the city centre will, will, I think, shift towards um, residential. Prices will come down. It'll be good for London, not bad for London. Uh, There's a huge question about what it means for the the, the inner suburbs, for the home counties. The small, attractive towns of the home counties are going to be inundated with people wanting to stay in them. Forget levelling up. There's no way the new planning regulations that came in today are going to do anything other than increase pressure on housing in the south-east. It's going to be devastating for the north. If it works, I don't think it'll work either, but that's a different matter. But I do think you're right. I do think there's an interesting question about what will be the nature of the Los Angelesization of the southeast of England. Is it really what we want? It's very uh, high energy consumption. It's not efficient. It's not sustainable. The best place to get people living sustainably is in big cities. The best place to maintain population is central London. We ought to be directed at trying to do that, even if it's not going to be office workers. If I could follow on from that, because what's really interesting is that naturally this this virus has evolved. People have talked about what will change. What I think is particularly interesting is what will not change. And there's a tendency to think everything will be different. I've highlighted the changes as the three Gs, grassroots, green and geopolitics at a global level. But what will not change will be one of the big debates that will clearly influence not just the UK, but London. Urbanisation has been a big global driver. More people living in cities, as Simon touched on, and cities accounting for more of growth. Smart cities has allowed that to happen in an environmentally friendly way. And I would say that if one looks at the global trend outside of the UK and Western Europe, that trend towards globalisation will continue. A few years ago, there was an interesting analysis that showed that the top 600 cities then accounted for about half of global growth. And close on a third of them were in the West, the Western economies. In 20 years time, it's expected that the top 600 cities would account for maybe two thirds of global growth, but only 
about 20 of the top 600 will be in the West. So we shouldn't forget that this crisis and the way it evolves isn't, in my view, going to change that urbanisation trend globally. So it's not just London, but other mid-tier cities in the UK. London is naturally the global city. I think we need to be mindful of that global competitive challenge, as well as the fact that we've taken on into account national and regional policies here at home. I mean, what's interesting about London is I think London is peculiarly attractive. It has gone from being really down and up as the 1960s and 70s to being hugely successful. It's successful for two reasons, I think. One is it speaks English and has built up a service economy around education, health uh, and tourism, which makes it very, very popular. But secondly, it is actually culturally a genuine hub. It's a creative hub in the classic Richard Florida sense. And these two things mean it will survive and it will prosper. London is in the unique position of having all the things going for it. It's got high immigration, which is very good news. It's got a cultural appeal, which is very good news and has got to be re-established as quickly as possible. It's a major tourist spot. It's an attractive place to live. It's a place for funny money to dump itself. It's got everything going for it. I just don't think it's in big trouble. What I'm hearing from both of you is varying levels, but calls for optimism. But I just wondered, I mean, not to put you in a difficult position, but... Were you to look into the future, how do each of you feel that London would have changed in about three years, you know, when we're looking ahead? How do you think coronavirus is going to change London as we know it? Um, Simon, would you like to go first? Bad news, really. I don't think it'll change very much. I think the big challenge, not for London, but for the government, is what they do about the rest of the country. Both coronavirus and the things like the planning changes, the recession, all these things, they all help capital cities. Uh, That's historically the case. And I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be the case now. The real challenge is to make, frankly, Manchester more like London, not to make it less like London, because you've got to rebalance the economy. Levelling up is a first-class idea. Although I'm an enthusiast for many of Boris Johnson's policies, these planning proposals, as as Gerald implies, are catastrophic. I, 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 I find it hard to believe, reading them today, I find it hard to believe them. They will not help. They will make it easier for people to crowd into the southeast outside London, which is the last thing you want as, 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 a, as a, a sort of sensible government just at the moment. So my worry is going to be that the north of England, which is now as poor as East Berlin, or East Germany rather, and places like Alabama, the north of England is going to get poorer and poorer, and London's going to have to pay for it. London will be taxed for the inefficiencies of the British economy overall, geographically. And it's the geography that you have to worry about, not London. London will look after itself, believe you me. I'm positive about London, but I'm not negative about the UK overall. It does depend, though, in asking the question, you say what's going to happen in three years. Clearly, it's not governments that drive every aspect of an economy, but clearly they also have a very important role to play. And as we emerge from this crisis, I think it's vital that we need more clarity and more vision in overall government policy. I would argue it needs to be a three-arrowed approach and we need to aim for a bullseye on all three arrows. One area has to be credible fiscal activism. No austerity, but no tax increases. Debt to GDP can come down steadily over time and can allow taxes to fall. We have an environment of low inflation, low rates, low yields, and we mustn't let treasury mindset thinking push us into the wrong fiscal stance. Second there is the whole monetary financial side. We have a very dynamic financial banking sector that needs to be used in the way in which it levels up the economy, but at the same time in the way in which 
it allows London as well as other parts of the country to do well. And it's about getting finance out to those businesses, those people that need it. And the third arrow is really vitally important. It's that whole supply side. It's all the eyes. It's infrastructure. Transport links are vital across the country, as well as within London, with Crossrail 2, for instance. It's about encouraging investment. It's about embracing innovation. And it's about getting the incentives right. And if you do all that, you get the other eye. You get inequality coming down. So I think we do need a credible macroeconomic policy with those three arrows. And I would be positive about the outlook. When one looks at the global drivers, the fourth industrial revolution, the technological change, is important. Maybe this virus will make us speed up our investment and our focus on that technological side. And the other big issue is the shift in the balance of power globally. This is a challenge prior crisis and post-crisis, not just for London and the UK, but for most of Western Europe as well. So I would be positive. The imbalances in the economy, yeah, not just London versus the rest, it's urban, rural, coastal, inland. Some of those might start to be addressed by government policies, which are on the sensible lines in some of those areas and may be speeded up by this virus as well. The one thing that's going to semi-collapse is public transport in London. I, re- I mean, I have no doubt at all that the commuter railway lines are going to be in desperate straits in three years. They may all be bankrupt. Buses are going to collapse. No one's taking buses. They're all taking bicycles. Uh, and I really think it's public transport that's going to be a problem in London in three years, a major problem. I always used to remember that when I was an undergrad, Liverpool... It was quicker then to travel by train from London to Liverpool than it is now. And there used to be a fast train every 30 minutes and intercity, I thought, worked really well. 79 to 82, that time period. It's interesting as we move on. But yeah, let's see if we can get back to that intercity speed, 21st century style. Thank you, Gerard. Thank you, Simon. Next, with elections in Holyrood next year, the Scottish Tories have a fight on their hands if they want to prevent the SNP winning a majority and impede their march to a second independence referendum. On Wednesday, they announced Douglas Ross as their new leader, and in this week's magazine, Alex Massey considers how the 37-year-old former dairy farmer should approach the upcoming role. He joins me now with James Forsyth, the Spectator's political editor. So Alex, we have a new leader of the Scottish Conservatives. You've profiled him in this week's magazine. Is he the new great hope? Well, he rather has to be, I think, is perhaps the best way of answering that question. In as much as the Scottish Conservatives, like all the opposition parties at the Scottish Parliament, are in a fairly desperate and deep hole at present. You know, the opinion polls suggest that the SNP are on track to win a thumping victory at next year's Holyrood elections, possibly with an overall majority. It seems all but certain there will be a pro-independence majority at Holyrood next May, and that therefore opens up all sorts of questions about the future of the United Kingdom, the future of the Union, because we would expect the SNP and the Greens and other pro-independence forces to push for a second independence referendum at some point in the next few years. And the opinion polls, again, at the moment, hypothetically sure, but at the moment they suggest that the nationalists would win such a referendum. So thwarting that is a pretty stiff task at present, and that is what Douglas Ross has been charged with doing. 
and obviously he brings a degree of freshness to the job, but also because Ruth Davidson is being used as the, the person who will front for the Scottish Conservatives at the Scottish Parliament until such time as Douglas Ross, who's currently the MP for Murray, is able to get a seat at Holyrood because Ruth Davidson will be a much more visible figure and so on. There's also a degree of continuity with the past for the Scottish Tories and they are selling this at the moment very much as a kind of joint ticket, you know, buy Douglas Ross and you get Ruth Davidson free as well, at least until next May when she steps down and then takes up her seat in the House of Lords. James, Douglas Ross's ascension to the role, I mean, it was a one-horse race. We didn't have any other candidates stand. And when it was first announced that Jackson Carlow was um, stepping down, it took many senior figures in government in Westminster by surprise. So is this something that has had any coordination in terms of number 10 and those around Douglas Ross? Or do you think that there was surprise in number 10 at how this came back? I think as uh, Alex makes clear in his piece, this was very much a coup by Ruth Davidson's people. Um, Jackson Carlos, a shadow cabinet, didn't know about it. And Ruth Davidson's people just said, look, this isn't working. We've got to get rid of him, in much the way that the Tory party decided they had to get rid of Ian Duncan Smith in 2003. And they moved in. Now, I mean, the interesting question about Ruth Davidson is this. What's going to happen when she steps down in 2021? There's a kind of weird thing, which is for Scottish TV viewers... It's going to be like Ruth Davidson is leading the Scottish Tories again because you will see her going up against Nicola Sturgeon at First Minister's Questions. She's going to be leading that Tory group at Holyrood. And so I think the kind of challenge of Douglas Ross is how do you cut through? It'd be like if Alex Ferguson kind of went back and took and became manager of Manchester United again uh, with a promise that somebody else was coming in at the end of the season. You know, How do you make people realise that you are going to be the person. And I think that that is a big challenge for Douglas Ross, which is he has got the job, as Alex makes clear, because Ruth Davidson essentially anointed him as her successor. How does he come out of her shadow in time? I think, though, that one thing I will say about this move is I don't think number 10 were in on it. I think, though, that they are greatly relieved by it. I think because they had done all this polling in Scotland and... Private polling is very, very rarely different from public polling. And, you know, as Alex puts it, Jackson Carlow was a used car salesman and the Scottish electorate didn't want to buy a used car from him, didn't want to buy a second-hand car from him. I think Jackson Carlow was a drag on Tory fortunes north of the border. The question is whether Douglas Ross can boost them as much as Ruth Davidson did back in the day. Alex, Douglas Ross needs to introduce himself to the to the United Kingdom, really. But can you introduce him to Coffeehouse listeners now? Tell us a bit about him, his nature. I'm not going to use quite the phrase that one of his colleagues used to describe his stubborn nature, but um, perhaps you can give us a summary. Yes, well, he's 37. He's the MP for Murray. He, having surprisingly defeated Angus Robertson in that constituency in the 2017 general election, the year before that, he had been elected for the first time to the Scottish Parliament as the Tories surged in the at that election and became the second largest party and he was quickly identified I think by Ruth Davidson as being the most naturally gifted in a political sense of that 2016 intake and indeed had he not defeated Angus Robertson I think there is quite a good chance that he would have succeeded Ruth Davidson directly which means that you know Jackson Carlaw's period in office you know is that of a regent rather than a monarch uh, now that Douglas Ross is taking over again he has a reputation for being quite 
firstly independent of mind. He is happy to rub against the grain of received wisdom, both in Scotland and the United Kingdom as a whole. If he takes a stand, which he considers principled, he will not be easily shifted from that. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why he resigned from his post as uh, Scotland Office Minister over the Dominic Cummings affair and specifically the Prime Minister's disinclination to sack Mr Cummings. So Douglas Ross quit on a point of principle, and that, of course, is a, a tolerably rare thing in politics. He is also a part-time football referee and linesman. Indeed, he will be running the line at Ibrox, uh, at Rangers' first home game of the season this weekend. And uh, he jokes about this. He gets quite a lot of criticism for occasionally missing votes because he's off on, on refereeing duty. But as he says, you know, he, he quite enjoys being, if you like, abused by 50,000 people at the weekend. Uh, so there is a, if you like, a, a masochistic quality to him as well, which is perhaps confirmed by his status as a Scottish Conservative politician too. The Tories are selling this as an opportunity to start afresh, to move on, to, as they put it, you know, move on from a decade of division in which Scottish politics has been dominated by the national question, the constitutional question, and to turn a new chapter and talk about, you know, the everyday issues, the bread and butter, health, education, transport, jobs, etc. Whether Douglas Ross has the ability to seize control of the initiative, if you like, and change that conversation and so on is, again, obviously something that's very much open to doubt because the last 10 years have been dominated by constitutional politics. It sometimes seems quite difficult to imagine a world in which the national question wouldn't dominate Scottish politics. Now, James, we're hearing about an independent-minded, stubborn new leader for the Scottish Conservatives. Just going back to what you were saying, which is the idea that number 10 are in a way, relieved, actually, that the Jackson-Carlow situation has been dealt with. If we rewind a little bit further back to when Ruth Davidson was leader of the Scottish Conservatives, it was, I think it's fair to say there was never a suggestion that Boris Johnson and Ruth Davidson had a particularly rosy or close relationship. And I think there were some in Boris Johnson's team who were quite sceptical of her. We also hear from Alex, um, as has been documented elsewhere, that Douglas Ross was the only ministerial resignation, a junior one, during uh, the Dominic Cummings Barnard Castle row. So, where does that leave us? Do you think that ultimately Boris Johnson and his team are quite happy for a Scottish Conservative Party which has some distance from them? And if they are, has that changed over time as they've seen how difficult the situation in Scotland is? In Alistair Jack, the Scottish Secretary, they do have someone they are quite close minded with, it seems. I think the problem with Boris Johnson and Ruth Davidson was. On one level, the obvious issue is Brexit between them. Ruth Davidson was for Remain, Boris Johnson was for Leave. I think it was actually just that they were too similar. They are both politicians who like to be the centre of attention and they both couldn't work out a way to share a stage together. It just didn't work between them. I mean, there is a recognition that Scottish Tories need to plough their own fire. I think they need to be clever about the way they do it, though, because if they demand for something to happen and it doesn't happen, the SNP just say, oh, look, you're impotent. Even within your own party, you can't get that. I think they are most effective when they pick on issues which they are going to win on that, I think, is the sensible step for them. I think there is a realisation, though, that the biggest single threat to this government is the union. Now, the biggest risk to Boris Johnson's premiership is what happens in that Scottish election in 2021 and how events play out after that. And I mean, there is a challenge here, which is, I don't think we are revealing a state secret to say that Alistair Jack is sceptical of the current setup with devolution. And I think it is clearly right that the idea that this devolution settlement was going to kill nationalism stone dead 
when you listen to what Alex says about what's going to happen at the next election, that clearly hasn't happened. The question then is, if the current settlement is eroding the union, what is the right way forward? Now, I think there are quite a few Tories who privately think, well, you roll back devolution. I don't think that is politically feasible. So I think they need to start thinking about whether you need to actually roll it forward, whether some move to some kind of greater federalism is actually the right way to do it. Because as Alex kind of finishes his piece by saying, as long as the Scottish electorate adopt this double standard in what they expect out of a Scottish government compared to what they expect out of a UK government, unionism is going to have a very hard time. And finally, Alex, just to give us a sense of the perspective of the Scottish nationalists, are they rattled about the appointment of Douglas Ross or not so much? Uh, not so much. Uh, I mean, and why should they be? I mean, you know, the independence is polling at 55%. The SNP are polling at 50% in pretty much every opinion poll survey over the last few months. From a position of that strength and so on, you are not going to be rattled by the appointment of a new leader of whom most people in Scotland know very little, who is heading up a party that is running at about 20% in the opinion polls. Now, I'm not suggesting that the SNP are complacent about this because they will certainly train their guns on on Douglas Ross. They will present him as Boris Johnson's man in Scotland, as a hard-right pro-Brexit Tory who's out of sympathy with mainstream Scottish opinion and so on and so on. Now, of course, they say this about almost any Conservative, but nevertheless, there is a constituency that is quite happy to believe these things. And so, you know, no, I do not think that Nicola Sturgeon is quaking in her boots. The person who might perhaps be a little bit worried about Douglas Ross is arrival is Richard Leonard, the leader of the hapless leader, I should say, of the Scottish Labour Party, because the Tories' ruthlessness in dispatching Jackson Carlaw has not gone unnoticed on the Labour benches. And there are quite a number of people in the Scottish Labour Party and so on who, who look at what's been happening with the Tories and think, well, you know, if the Tories can ditch a useless leader who is making no impact on the electorate and so on, isn't it time that the Labour Party thought it should do something similar with its own hopeless, useless leader and so on who is making no impact on the electorate. But no, Nicola Sturgeon will not be losing too much sleep over the arrival of Douglas Ross. Thank you, Alex, and thank you, James. And finally, the Kashmir region is often seen as a potential flashpoint in a future conflict between India and China. In June, 20 Indian soldiers were killed in a border dispute. But in this week's issue... Historian Francis Pike says the forthcoming geopolitical struggle between the two nuclear powers will not be on land, but rather on water, in the Bay of Bengal and the Andaman Sea. Francis joins me with Dr Jonathan Ward, author of China's Vision of Victory. Francis, what is the emerging naval struggle between India and China? The emerging naval struggle is this, is that India sits on the trade route between the Middle East and China. And 90% of China's oil goes through the Malacca Straits. So for China, their weak point strategically is the Malacca Straits. And it's how to make sure that India nor the United States can interfere in that important trade route. And Jonathan, we hear a lot at the moment in the UK press about relations between China and parts of the West particularly the UK. But just for listeners who aren't so aware, what are relations like between China and India more broadly? Well, well they're not good. And there's a, a deep history there. I mean, in the 1950s, India essentially made a bet that they could you know, have a friendship with China, the five principles of peaceful coexistence, and wound up with the border war in 1962. So you're talking about the clashes in the Himalayas, I think really replay a very important moment in, in Indian history. 
and um, you know probe that deep distrust that's existed. So, and you add to that the geostrategic struggle that extends well beyond the Himalayas and and deeply into the Indian Ocean, and it's a, quite a large problem that India has. And then when we're looking at today's struggles and the you know the various geopolitics that are occurring, Jonathan, why is it that more important than the land disputes might be the actual naval struggle? What is the reason for that? Because at the end of the day, I mean, China's uh, strategic ambitions have to do with their global resource quest. So the Belt and Road map, when you overlay that on the world, you're talking about an intercontinental structure with the Indian Ocean as its heart. I mean, the Indian Ocean is, you know, the maritime trade routes that bind those continents together. And China wishes to control that, both through economic relationships and through building military power. So many people are focused on the South China Sea, but that's really only a springboard to uh, the Indian Ocean, to the Pacific. You know, I spent time when I was doing my doctorate at Oxford in China-India relations with the head of a think tank in, in southern China that was focused on India. And what he said to me was, the Indian Ocean is the most important region in the world for China because we will depend on it for the next 40 years. So in order to truly achieve their objectives in the Indian Ocean, India stands in the way of that. I mean, they're naturally, they dominate that geographically and China does not. So China has to build all of this complex um, network of, of infrastructure and ultimately military power in order to secure their objectives in the region. And Francis, when we're looking at these areas, which are the most important? You know, why is it that China wants to control the Bay of Bengal, the Adaman Sea? I think what China wants to do is to... If you know the, the game of Go, it's a territorial game. It wants to place stones, which are the, the name of the pieces in the game of Go, to control areas of maritime territory. And so the port of Chittagong in Bangladesh, they're financing. A new port in Arakan State in Myanmar, they're also financing. They've already built a, a naval base covering the Suez Canal at Djibouti. Gwaidat, which is the new main deep water port being developed in Pakistan, which will link in the Silk Road, that's another stone in place. And also very important, and this is, I think, somewhat overlooked, is that there's a reason why China's one of China's closest relationships since it's been an independent communist country is Sri Lanka. Because Sri Lanka sits at the joining point between the Bay of Bengal and the Indian Ocean and at the southern tip of India. And so there's a reason why that's been a very close relationship and why China's invested so much money in Sri Lanka. And Jonathan, who currently controls these areas? Obviously, we're talking about India, but is it the case that other countries have bases here that is not just between the two? No, I mean, these are independent countries, of course. You know, I got to spend time at the port of Hambantota in 2016. The Indian, or the, rather the Sri Lankan Ministry of Shipping allowed me to go and see it because I was interested in these places. And, you know, the Maldives as well and Mauritius and other pieces of the Indian Ocean, um, you know, strategic geography. I was giving speeches in these countries. And what I heard at all times, really, in a variety of different places was, this adage that I think is used all over the world that said, when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. You know, these smaller nations were quite concerned, I think, about the Indian-China rivalry that was taking shape. Um, you know, some people were saying we wish the United States were more involved as a balancing power. But ultimately, you know, China has worked its way into this region 
you know, securing ports, infrastructure, all the rest of it. And India, I think, has less developed economic relations, many of these countries, even though they've exerted power in the past. And as Francis points out, I mean, China's been cultivating many of these countries for decades. I mean, there's a giant conference center in Sri Lanka that was built and opened by Zhou Enlai. And, and, you know, things like that are just really creating dividends now in terms of Chinese strategic power. In the past, it was more for the sake of diplomatic allies within the Cold War. Francis, if China is trying to increase its influence, both in terms of politics and terms of the economy. What has the response of Western nations been to this so far? Are they aware of it? Are they taking action? Well, they're aware of it, and clearly they're very aware of it in the South China Sea. The problem for America is its constant play on moral issues. So whether it's in the South China Sea, Duterte's you know, very authoritarian crackdown on crime, whether it's Aung San and the Rohingyas in Myanmar, whether it's the overthrow of democracy in Thailand, there are always moral issues being brought forward by America. So a lot of these smaller countries feel that America is an untrustworthy ally. And I think it was very much shown this in Thailand when, after the coup about 15 years ago, the American government withdrew military funding for the Thai military. So the Thai military now very much looks towards China, not towards America. So instead of pursuing what I would call the realpolitik politique of the post-war period, which was incredibly successful, Asian countries now don't see America as being a pragmatic country. They see it as a country which can, from time to time, swing, particularly under a democratic president such as Barack Obama, towards having a morality-driven foreign policy. And that just doesn't work for them. Jonathan, what are the risks of escalation here? Are there, is it just simply influence or could things become more heated and we could see an escalation into a different type of conflict? Well, I think for the moment, things are concentrated around the Himalayan border. I mean, you know, the first fatalities at the hands of the Chinese military in the 21st century is quite a significant event. And I think, you know, we may not have seen the end of that. To see it proceed into the maritime domain, I think is uh, is unlikely unless there were some kind of all-out war, which I also think would be unlikely at this point. But continued violence on in the Himalayan region, I think, is significant. There's a possibility of that, of course. You know, on the other hand, the sort of chess match that traditionally has taken place on the Himalayan borders is moving to other parts of this geographical region. And I think um, the Bay of Bengal is incredibly important because, you know, part of it is related to Bastion's strategy with uh, nuclear deterrence. So as India looks to secure its SSBNs, you know, and China may be doing a similar thing in the South China Sea. I mean, you're talking about an overlapping geography here that's going to be quite a, require a detailed sort of approach on each side. And Francis, when it comes to who is perhaps likely to come out on top, it's clear that China is amassing power. You write that the number of Chinese naval vessels have more than doubled in the past 15 years. But who are India's friends here? Um, You know, what countries can India look to for help? Well, India's natural ally would be the United States and Europe. But we have to discount Europe. And Europe won't even pay for its own strategic defence. So I think we just, you know, leave Europe out of the equation, largely. America is the natural ally, but India and America have always had a difficult, it's not been an easy relationship historically. Now, I think in the end they will come together, but it needs an American presidency which understands the long-term game that China is playing here. And at the moment, I don't think we have that. 
Europe cannot sit out the problems of Asia here. I mean, the geopolitical center of gravity of the world is shifting to the Indo-Pacific, and that's really driven by China's rise, China's confrontation with the world. And also the rise of India is going to be a significant factor in how that plays out. So for Europe, and particularly Britain, you know, to have... um, you know, a blind eye to the problems of Asia. I don't think that's actually happening. I think it was the case for, you know, under Osborne and such, the idea that you're going to engage and that's going to be the relationship to Asia. I mean, that's a very uh, foolish path. But, you know, we're going to need help. We're going to need support from the European allies, particularly in the Indian Ocean. I mean, when I was spending time in the Indian Ocean, the French presence was fascinating. And I got to spend time with UK com ops and things. And it was, you know, there's a real understanding of that region that needs to be brought to this picture. So Britain cannot sit this out. Britain belongs in the Indian Ocean. The British relationship with India is one of the weakest relationships among the world's most important democracies, and that has to be strengthened. I mean, the fascination with China that drove a certain kind of British foreign policy, that was very dangerous. And it's time to, I think, remember that there's this constellation of democracies that's coming together around the China problem. And many British policymakers get this, but Britain is vitally important to the future of global security, especially as it unfolds in the Indo-Pacific region. As the UK adopts a, perhaps not the phrase Boris Johnson would want to use, but a more hostile approach to China in terms of relations, we are well past the golden era, as um, was touched on by Jonathan in terms of the Osborne and Cameron days. Do you think there's an opportunity for the UK government to strengthen ties with India? Absolutely. I think that has to start now. And with India, with Japan, with Australia, with America, with the Quad, um, you know, the Quad should have a European dimension too. And I, and I think um, Britain has a lot to be gained from looking towards the Commonwealth, looking towards India, looking towards this whole uh, collection that's going to be required. I just think it's unlikely that they're going to be anything other than very big players, simply because their main concern should be with their order with Russia for which they're just not paying their way for defence. So I would like Europe to be involved, but I just don't see it happening in any meaningful way. Yes, I mean, China is a problem for all of us because it's now such a big beast. I mean, it's on posting power parity terms, it's the United States, economically. Uh, it's more than double the size of India. So in a sense, there needs to be a corralling of allies in the West, democratic-facing allies, to contain China's growth. But at the same time, we can't forget that we trade with China. And I don't think the two things are incompatible. I think we need to do the right things to to make sure that China doesn't have complete supremacy in Asia. At the same time, we have to trade and grow our economies with China in the future. So it's a multidimensional strategy. And I think it's the same strategy, in fact, that China would have towards the West. They know that economically they need the West just as we need China. We talked about the importance of America playing a role in this. Some different views on what exactly the role should be in terms of what you should do to China in this or how to shape it. But I just wondered, I mean, we're talking about how America is the most powerful player in terms of India-China relationships and being another partner. We have an American election on the horizon. Do you think it will make much of a difference whether it is Donald Trump or Joe Biden when we're looking at India potentially having an ally in this? 
I think that there's a deep bipartisan consensus now in the United States on the issue of China. You know, you look at the bills that are being passed in Congress. I mean, many of them are being passed unanimously, which is why the human rights dimension to our foreign policy is incredibly significant. I mean, that's what's bringing us together on China is an appreciation of values and human rights. So that's across both party lines. You know, the idea that India is um, a tremendously important country to our foreign policy and our future. I think that's also deeply understood. And that's um, been there for quite a few administrations now. So I think you're going to see some continuity here in American foreign policy in terms of China as an adversary and India as a partner. And then the rest will be in the execution. I think, um, you know, the Trump administration has broken unprecedented ground in terms of uh, taking on China as a hostile state. And then, you know, the Biden administration, one might expect, would work more successfully with Europe, let's say. But I think certain uh, consensus has arrived in terms of what China means for America. And we need that consensus to grow across the alliance system so that we're able to take on this problem. And we need to remember that this is an economic competition. That's where we have to focus our energy. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Francis. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. Do pick up the full issue or have a read online at spectator.co.uk. You can find actress Joanna Lumley explain why she eats birdseed, former Chancellor Nigel Lawson on losing weight, and me on how the next Lib Dem leader could help the Labour Party one way or another. And wait, before you go, why not subscribe to The Spectator? For just £12, you can get 12 issues of the magazine delivered to your door, full access to our website, and we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Absolutely free. Forget Eat Out to Help Out. This is the offer people are raving about, or at least that's what the producer to this podcast says. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. <laughs>